You are listening to the Draper Fisher Jurvetson Entrepreneurial Thought Leader Seminar, brought to you weekly by Stanford Technology Ventures Program at Stanford University School of Engineering. Today I have the privilege of introducing our speaker today, uh, Joe McCracken. Joe's filling in for Sue Hellman, who's the uh, president of um, product development at Genentech. She was called away having to testify in a court case that got continued on the East Coast, so she didn't get to escape the lawyers. But, uh, but we have Joe filling in for her, and Joe is head of uh, business development for, uh, for Genentech um, and has been at Genentech for about seven years now, took a little bit of a break. Prior to that, and then was one of the early early people at Genentech, starting in 1983. So he has a long history at Genentech. I'm sure many of you know Genentech, but if you don't, I think you'll you'll find Joe's stock pretty interesting. Genentech is one of those companies that's been able to do some really uh, have some great financial performance, but but has also stayed true to values around delivering uh, real real value to uh, very sick people. So it's a combination of a social mission with with a great financial performance. Uh, so without talking more, let me introduce Joe to you. Thanks. Thanks very much. Well, first, I'd also like to extend uh, Dr. Sue Hellman. She's my boss. I'd like to extend her uh, regrets that she couldn't be with you here today. Believe me, she would much rather have been here than where she is. Um, but I'm delighted to be here and to talk to some of you about Genentech. I looked at the program, and I say that most of your speakers in this program are from the information technologies, electronics world. Um, but I'm going to talk about, about healthcare and biology, um, which is what Genentech is all about and what drives our company. So um, Genentech was actually established in 1976. Um, and the, the gentleman that you can see on your left is Professor Herbert Boyer. Uh, he was actually a professor at University of uh, UCSF, so University of California at San Francisco. And he was collaborating with Stanley Cohen, who uh, was a professor here at Stanford and is still here at Stanford University. And um, Cohen and Boyer were interested in being able to cut and splice DNA, to recombine DNA in predictable and controllable manners. Uh, and, and in 1976, that was really purely of academic interest. No one, uh, I don't think either one of them, ever really imagined that there would be any significant commercial application of, of that technology. And the gentleman you can see on, on the right uh, in this picture is Bob Swanson. And uh, Bob was a young guy with a degree in chemistry that was working up the road at Kleiner Perkins. Um, it wasn't Caulfield and Byers then, it was just Kleiner Perkins. And, and his job was to, was to look around the world for interesting investment opportunities. And he saw some of the papers that had been published by Cohen and Boyer uh, and was smart enough to realize that that in theory, if you could recombine DNA predictably and in the ways that, that uh, Cohen and Boyer were trying to do, that you could use that technology to make proteins uh, and to make literally unlimited uh, quantities and, and, and high quality proteins that might be useful in a variety of applications in human health care, specialty chemicals, enzymes, diagnostics, um, lots of different applications. So um, Swanson and Boyer met and they each put 500 dollars together to, uh, to pay for the documents of incorporation. They cost them about $1,000 to form the company. And they worked together in two year, for two years in labs at UCSF and here at Stanford and some other academic institutions to just do a simple experiment. And what they wanted to do was to 
to demonstrate that you could make a biologically active peptide. And they, they chose somatostatin because it was a little 14-amino acid peptide. Three-dimensional structure was known. There were good biological activity assays. Um, they didn't think that it would have any commercial importance, um, but they thought it would be very important to demonstrate you could make a biologically active peptide in a recombinant organism because no one had done that before. Uh, and so this was what, this was, took them two years to do what is now a high school biology project, but there was no, there was no clone tech catalog. You couldn't order up your, uh, your restriction enzymes. You had to actually purify and make everything by hand. So they worked for two years. In 1978, they were successful and they announced that they had, uh, had cloned and expressed a biologically active protein. And they used that success to raise some additional funds and then to go after what was, to everyone skilled in the art, the obvious next experiment, which was to see if you could make human insulin. Uh, and so the race was on, and there was a, a group of scientists that became Genentech. There were also a group of scientists that came, uh, in, in a couple other academic institutions that were all racing to clone and express human insulin. And Genentech was successful in doing that. So Genentech set up a lab in 1978 in South San Francisco. They rented about 75 feet in, in a little, uh, in a little uh, warehouse and set up a lab and an office there. Uh, and they were successful in cloning and expressing human insulin. Well, Genentech didn't have any development facilities, manufacturing facilities, commercial facilities around the world. So Genentech licensed that project to Eli Lilly, and the product Humulin, recombinant human insulin, is marketed by Lilly today around the world. Uh, and it's the, it's the standard of care for treatment of, of diabetes. So Genentech then took that money and poured it back into its own research and took on some of its own projects. Uh, and... Uh, not only uh, has you know, Genentech uh, established itself as a company, but Genentech actually launched an entire industry. So starting up in South San Francisco and also over in Boston, um, there were a number of uh, entrepreneurial companies that were established uh, over the last 30 years. Um, at, at present, there are about 1,444 biotechnology companies at last count, about 330 publicly held companies. Uh, but more importantly, those companies over the last 30 years have given us about 40 new drugs uh, that are approved uh, for serious diseases. Uh, and by recent count, there's about 300 biotech products that are currently in clinical trials um, aimed at cancer, AIDS, Alzheimer's disease, heart disease, um, some of the, the diseases that have been most um, recalcitrant and most difficult to approach with traditional pharmaceutical discovery. So uh, Genentech today has about, uh, actually about 11,000 employees. We have about 8,500 of them on our campus up in South San Francisco. Um, last year we reported uh, almost $7 billion in revenues. In the first half of this year we reported over $4 billion in revenues. So we're growing nicely. Um, the $1,000 that, uh, that Herb and Bob put together to form the company, uh, now arguably worth about $85 billion, so that's a pretty nice return. Um, Genentech's considered a leader in manufacturing these high molecular weight proteins or therapeutic proteins under the kinds of conditions that um, are required by the Food and Drug Administration and other regulatory agencies around the world. Um, and in, in fact, Genent the capacity that Genentech controls for manufacturing um, therapeutic proteins is about equal to the capacity of all the other companies in the, in the rest of the world today. Um, but 
more important, I think probably the most important distinguishing feature of Genentech is really its commitment to developing innovative therapeutics for life-threatening, life-altering diseases. And uh, someone asked me uh, just, just a few minutes ago, they said, you know, so what is it that makes Genentech unique? You know, why would you, if Genentech is successful, you know, why would you, uh, why would you think Genentech has been so successful? I'd say two things, hiring the best people and a unique biology-driven business model where we follow the science uh, as opposed to trying to, uh, to get the science to give us something that we want. And I have a little more to say about that. Um, so we are not the largest biotechnology company. There's another company that is larger than we are. Um, I don't think that bothers anyone at Genentech. Um, what, what's important to us is that we are really leading the industry in developing innovative products, so truly no novel products that address life-threatening and life-altering diseases. And if you look at our portfolio of products, um, our company has been fairly true to that mission. So the first product uh, that's listed there, Protropin, was approved in October of 1985. This is recombinant human growth hormone. So prior to the approval of this product, patients with pituitary dwarfism, who would normally only reach an, a full adult height of about one meter, um, those patients were treated with growth hormone that was extracted from the pituitary glands of cadavers. And, and what we learned and what we knew by, by 1985 was that, that those preparations that, were, that came from thousands of different pituitary glands were contaminated with a virus, a slow virus we now call, we call them prions, um, and uh, many of these patients died of, of, uh, of a fatal disease. So when we, we, when we received approval of of protropin in 1985, we were able to offer patients with this serious life-threatening disease literally an unlimited supply of pure, safe, uncontaminated human growth hormone um, so that they can now, uh, if they're diagnosed prior to um, the, the point where their growth plates fuse, the, if, so if they're identified at, uh, prior to puberty and at a younger age, then these children can now grow to a, a full uh, adult height. Um, the, Next product down there, uh, I'll talk about rituxin for a minute. So rituxin was the first recombinant um, monoclonal antibody that was approved for the treatment of cancer. So there's, uh, rituxin is a monoclonal antibody that binds to a very specific protein called CD20 that appears only on B cells. When your B cells become malignant, you have non-Hodgkin's lymphoma. So by developing a monoclonal antibody that would target only this spe very specific protein, the CD20 protein on B cells, we, had, we thought we would have a very effective treatment for non-Hodgkin's lymphoma. And that, in fact, is true. Uh, rituxin has revolutionized the treatment of, of non-Hodgkin's lymphoma. But um, our, our development of rituxin didn't stop when we got approval of this drug for the treatment of non-Hodgkin's lymphoma. Um, throughout the life cycle of this product, and it's going on today, um, we've been studying the role of B cells in, uh, in cancer, but also in autoimmune and inflammatory diseases. Um, and so for many years, T cells, so there's 
two major kinds of lymphocytes, T lymphocytes, B lymphocytes. T lymphocytes were considered to be the major mediators of autoimmune and inflammatory diseases. Probably 80% of the research into those diseases was focused on those cells. Many people ignored B cells. Um, what we learned in our clinical trials was we were treating patients with non-Hodgkin's lymphoma who also had rheumatoid arthritis and their RA was eliminated. So that caused us to go back and to look at the underlying biology of rheumatoid arthritis and to determine that in fact B cells clearly have an important role in rheumatoid arthritis. And we recently reported positive phase two data with rituxan in relapsing and remitting MS um, and a variety of other diseases that are mediated by B cells. So um, this is part of, I think, uh, Genentech's fundamental business model, which is to follow the biology uh, and, and through drug development and through commercialization. Herceptin is, uh, our, was the next product that was approved after rituxan. So Herceptin is, is a really interesting monoclonal antibody um, for the treatment of metastatic breast cancer. So it, breast cancer is not one disease, probably about 10 different diseases. Uh, it turns out that about 25% of the women with metastatic breast cancer have a unique form of breast cancer that's driven by the amplification of a specific oncogene called HER2. Um, and unfortunately, those are also the patients who have the worst, or at least historically had the worst prognosis. So now almost all women with breast cancer um, their tumors are biopsied and, and their level of HER2 gene amplification or gene expression is measured. And so women who have amplification of the HER2 oncogene are now treated with Herceptin and they have remarkable uh, improvements in their, in their survival. If you, if you have breast cancer and you don't have amplification of the HER2 gene, you're not treated with Herceptin because it, 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 it would not be useful. It would just be a waste of time, waste of money. So this today is still the best and, and maybe the only example of a pharmacogenomic product where patients with tumors are biopsied to determine what's the specific molecular driver of their tumor, of their disease, and where you have a therapy that's uniquely designed for that specific, uh, for that specific defect. And in fact, um, while I said that at one time, having HER2 positive status in your tumor was really a, a negative prognostic factor. Uh, the survival data that we have in patients treated with Herceptin has really transferred, has transformed a prognosis that was particularly grave to one that actually is much more positive. So um, we're very proud of that product and, uh, and happy to offer that alternative to women with this specific form of breast cancer. Um, Avastin was approved in 2004. Um, Avastin is a drug which is the first anti-angiogenic therapy. Um, so it, as you may know, tumors in order to grow need to recruit a blood supply to recruit oxygen and nutrients and get rid of waste so that they can grow and that they can uh, ultimately destroy your life. And the major mediator of blood vessel growth and formation for tumors is a protein called vascular endothelial growth factor, or VEGF. And Avastin is uh, a product that we developed, which is a monoclonal antibody that targets vascular endothelial growth factor. Um, and it's now approved in uh, colorectal cancer and in lung cancer. Uh, and again, when, when we 
when Avastin was approved in 2004, the drug development didn't stop then. Um, today, we have about 250 trials in about 25 different tumor types that are ongoing to look at uh, different applications of Avastin in different tumors and also in other diseases. And then I'll just mention uh, an, uh, the last product, Lucentis. So Lucentis is a different molecule which also binds vascular endothelial growth factor. And the leading cause of blindness uh, in adults is a disease called age-related macular degeneration. And it's a disease of vascular proliferation where the blood vessels in your retina proliferate in an uncontrolled and undesirable manner and ultimately obscure your vision uh, and lead to, lead to blindness. And we developed a, a different form of, uh, of, of an anti-VEGF molecule that's a smaller molecular weight that doesn't have the complement activating activities. And this molecule is injected into the eye in patients with uh, age-related macular degeneration. In our clinical trials, in, uh, we had patients who were legally blind who not only had the progression of their disease halted, but actually had their vision increased so that people that were unable to drive could suddenly drive their cars again. Um, and remarkable story uh, and a remarkable product. Well, we didn't do all of this alone. Um, I just tried to highlight on this slide some of our partners. Um, so, for example, uh, Activase, our thrombolytic for the treatment of stroke and myocardial infarction, was developed in collaboration with Beringer Ingelheim. Um, Rituxan, the non-Hodgkin's lymphoma product, wasn't even discovered by Genentech. It was discovered by a small company called IDEC, now known as Biogen IDEC. Uh, we've developed Zolaire in collaboration with Novartis. Um, OSI Pharmaceuticals in New York discovered Tarceva. We worked with them to develop the molecule. So it doesn't matter to us where the, the innovation comes from. All we care is, uh, is it good science and is it likely to lead to a new treatment for a serious or a life-threatening human disease? And that's what motivates everyone at Genentech. So I, I put this slide together to, to really uh, try to illustrate what I think is unique about Genentech versus some of the traditional pharmaceutical companies. So the, the traditional pharmaceutical companies are all great companies, and, and I don't mean to be critical of them at all, but they are different. Um, they have traditional commercially driven business models where the commercial organizations of these companies, um, the CEOs of these companies are typically, you know, of uh, sales and marketing, finance backgrounds. Um, they have the best offices. They're the grand poobahs. Um, they make all the decisions and they pick up the phone and they call research and they say, I have a cardiovascular sales force with you know, 3,000 sales reps, uh, and the products that they're talking about are about to go off patent. So can you please give me a product, a new product that has the following specifications, and would you supersize it almost as, as if they're going through McDonald's so that they can, uh, they can continue to f uh, fund their vested interest in this major sales force? Um, that's what I mean by a commercially driven business model. Uh, Genentech's business model is really driven by science and particularly by biology. Um, so the, the commercial folks at Genentech aren't the grand poobahs. Um, it's actually the scientists who have the best offices, the best space, uh, and who focus on basically three areas of biology. So among all of the areas of biology, we've identified three that we think could be important, uh, that play a major role in health and disease. 
And within those three areas of, each of those three areas of biology, we've chosen from, say, one to about ten pathways that we think are particularly important in that area of biology. And then within those pathways, we look at all of the druggable targets or the potential points to intervene to modulate, to regulate that fundamental biological pathway. And that's where drug discovery starts. So at Genentech, if I could give you an example, um, one of the three areas of biology, uh, tissue growth and repair, uh, has a pathway that we focus on angiogenesis, so the formation and regulation of new blood vessel growth. The basic biology in, of, of angiogenesis, the one basic biology program, gave us Avastin, the product that I talked about for the treatment of solid tumors. It gave us Lucentis, the product that I talked about for age-related macular degeneration. So two completely different therapeutic areas, two completely different business franchises, no no synergy at all in the commercial world. And in addition, the same biology has given us a pro-angiogenic, so the other two molecules were anti-angiogenic molecules, but the same biology has given us a pro-angiogenic molecule, which we're developing and have in phase two clinical trials for the treatment of diabetic non-healing ulcers. So patients with diabetes, um, particularly elderly patients with diabetes, get uh, ulcers or wounds on their lower extremities. Um, it's, the hypothesis is that the, the wounds don't heal uh, because of an underlying vascular insufficiency. And in fact, that leads to amputation in patients with diabetes because their wounds just never heal. Uh, and what we're testing is a hypothesis that by using a pro-angiogenic molecule that we can actually stimulate new uh, blood vessel growth and formation and potentially offer an alternative to amputation for people with these chronic non-healing wounds. So one area of biology, three different products, each in a completely different therapeutic area, a completely different business franchise. And our commercial organization, I'll get to in a minute, is set up to really take what the technology gives them and to move into and out of new therapeutic areas um, where those therapeutic areas are, uh, where the products are for the treatment of life-threatening, life-altering diseases. So I talked about research and our focus on biology. Um, our research scientists have a partnership with our physician scientists in de development to develop hypotheses and test hypotheses for the intervention in these core pathways in different diseases and to look for useful therapies and, and, and truly innovative therapies for serious diseases. Um, our manufacturing organization uh, is committed to ensure that we have safe, safe, reliable, reproducible material for research, development, and, uh, and ultimately marketing. And then, as I said, our commercial organization is, has been established to really take what the technology gives them. So the, the core expertise of our commercial organization is in uh, getting into and out of new therapeutic areas. So I think we have uh, either eight or nine uh, different molecular entities um, or, or products. Only one sales force talks about two products, um, and that our, we have one sales force that talks about Herceptin and Tarceva because both of those products actually target different proteins in the same pathway in the, uh, the HER2 pathway. All of our other sales forces, our salespeople only talk about one product. 
And unlike the traditional pharmaceutical companies where, you know, historically the effort was to build lots of, uh, to put lots of products in a single franchise to leverage across the sales force, um, we've really moved away from that towards a promotional or a commercial model that emphasizes two things, customer service, um, making sure that people have primarily reimbursement um, for, for can, get, uh, can get healthcare reimbursement for our drugs, and two, um, medical education, where primarily we, our scientists and our physicians are talking to other scientists and physicians to try and help the medical community understand how our new drugs can be used, how they shouldn't be used, um, what they can expect, what they cannot expect when they use um, these innovative therapeutic agents. Um, our research scientists are encouraged to spend at least 20% of their time doing uh, undirected research. They don't have to tell anybody what they're working on. Um, if the project fails, no one knows. If, uh, if it's successful, they can come to the research organization and ask for additional resources. And I think this encourages the scientists, or at least it makes it possible for scientists to try some things that may be high risk, but could be potentially very high reward, like Avastin. No one ever told Napoleon Ferrara go figure out how to make uh, an antibody or to interfere with vascular endothelial growth factor so that we can treat tumors. That wasn't the idea at all. Napo was trying to understand the regulation of new blood vessel growth and formation, and when he made an antibody to a particular protein and discovered that it could inhibit blood vessel formation, that led to uh, both Lucentis and Avastin, the two important products that I talked about. Um, our scientists are encouraged to publish um, their work in peer-reviewed journals. We have uh, about 6,000 patents. Three of our scientists, uh, Mark Tessier-Levine, Napoleon Ferrara, and Richard Scheller are members of the National Academy of Sciences. Um, our development organization uh, partners, as I said, with our research organization. We have about 40 different projects right now focused on applications in oncology, immunological diseases, and disorders of tissue growth and repair. Um, in 2005, we, we announced uh, eight positive phase three clinical trials and submitted uh, five uh, FDA filings for new product or indication approvals, and we actually received three FDA approvals that year. Um, as I mentioned earlier, Genentex controls manufacturing of high therapeutic, uh, high molecular weight therapeutic proteins that is equal in capacity to the capacity of the rest of the world combined. We have facilities in South San Francisco where we make materials for research, development, and all of our commercial products are eventually launched from the facility in South San Francisco. We have a facility in Vacaville, California. It's about 100 uh, kilometers east of, of San Francisco, uh, which is all large-scale manufacturing where uh, products uh, after launch are transferred. And we have another facility in Oceanside, California. Uh, I mentioned that our commercial organization uh, is, is set up to ensure that our products, to make sure that our products get to all of the patients who need them and can benefit from them, uh, and not to patients that won't benefit from them. Uh, we have a very different consultative uh, selling approach, uh, which emphasizes medical education, um, and we've been relatively successful. Our Avastin product, which was launched in 2004, was the most successful oncology product ever launched, and our product Lucentis is already the most successful uh, ophthalmology product that has ever been launched.
Um, all of that has, uh, has led to strong top-line growth for the company. We're not a charity. We're not a government institution. We have to pay for all of our own research, all of our own development. Uh, you can see in this slide that our sales have grown nicely up to almost uh, $7 billion last year. Uh, and we're on track to achieve sales of about $8 billion this year. Um, our uh, bottom line growth has uh, tracked nicely. Um, with our top line growth, you can see that our year-on-year -year, uh, earnings per share growth has averaged about 30%, uh, which has enabled us to continue to invest in our business and to recruit some of the best people. Um, we also think uh, we have a responsibility uh, to make sure that our patients are available to uh, all of the patients in the United States that need them. Um, last year, we gave uh, about $200 million in free drug to patients who lacked insurance um, or could not, uh, uh, who lacked insurance, and we gave about $27 million in assistance to patients to help them with their copays, so patients that had insurance and needed assistance with copayments. Um, we've provided about $15 million uh, last year in financial support to our community, mostly to high schools uh, and libraries to uh, promote science education, uh, and we have a number of volunteer programs at the company. So Fortune Magazine every year keeps a list of 100 best companies in America to work for. We've been on the list for a number of years. Um, last year we were uh, all surprised but honored to be named by Fortune Magazine the number one company to work for in America. Um, people will ask, you know, what makes Genentech such a great company? And universally the answer is clear. Um, benefits, some of the things that we have at the company are nice, but what makes Genentech a great place to work for is the fact that everyone at Genentech feels like they're making a difference in patients' lives. If you come and visit our campus, you'll see billboard size photographs of patients all over our campus. Um, we, we, we get stories from patients um, who have been treated with our drugs, whose lives have been changed, um, and we invite them to come to Genentech and speak to the employees. There's nothing that's more motivating to our employees than having someone come up in front of our group and tell us um, that they were diagnosed with cancer, that their physician told them that they should get their affairs in order, that they were treated with one of their drugs and they've been in remission for four years, um, and they've been able to see their grandchildren graduate from high school. That's the most motivating thing uh, that ever happens uh, in, in our lives at Genentech. Um, for the last few years, we've been named by Science Magazine, who conducts a survey of their readers, as the uh, best science company to work for. Uh, we were just uh, named the top employer by Science Magazine again for 2006. Um, and so we're proud of those accomplishments. Um, and I was told to speak for about 30 minutes, and I think I've gone over for about five, so... At this point, I'd be delighted to uh, take any questions. <laughs> yes, sir. What advice would you give uh, non researchers in terms of pursuing a career in the biological business? And also, could you talk about some decisions that are crucial for your career? Okay. So the first question was what advice would I give someone without a science or a medical background that was interested in a, in a, a healthcare company? Um, and the only thing that I would say would be, look for a company that is, that is trying to, that is, is ruthlessly pursuing real innovation. Uh, because 
ultimately, uh, I think uh, offering better treatments for uh, for serious diseases, and there are still lots of them out there. So the, the gentleman in the first photograph I showed you, our founder, Bob Swanson, um, was diagnosed uh, with uh, brain cancer. And despite all of his resources, in less than two years from his diagnosis, Bob was no longer with us. So, I mean, that's just one example of the number of serious diseases that are out there for which there's just no effective therapy at all. So what I would encourage you to do would be to look for a company that's really dedicated itself to pursuing treatments for, um, for uh, serious unmet medical needs and to bring whatever skills you have in engineering, in business, in finance. It doesn't make any difference. Um, bring whatever skills you have, but look for a company that's motivated to make a difference in patients' lives. Uh, yes? Okay, so the question was, uh, after you get the first, uh, the question started with a statement or an assumption, which is that after you get the first product approved, that's where the majority of the costs are, and then subsequent approvals cost less, how do you define, and the question was, how do you define an equitable price? Is that a fair restatement? Or I guess like producing that Okay, so uh, you know, I, I tried to make the point in, that the development doesn't stop when the drug is approved, and, and Avastin is almost the poster child for for that. Um, as I said, we have about 250 trials ongoing right now um, in 25 different tumor types. Uh, I don't know exactly what our development budget for uh, Avastin is, uh, but it's tens to hundreds of millions of dollars for those clinical trials. So um, we have right now, uh, with Rituxan, which was approved in 1997, um, almost a similar number of studies that are going on into different indications. So I guess my answer to your question is, you need to do two things. Number one, you, with respect to pricing, you, you need to ensure, regardless of your price, that your drug is available to the patients who need it. Okay? And so we're committed to do that. And then you need to price your drugs in a way that reflects their value, but enables you to sustain your continued development in both those products as well as other innovative products. Yes? Um, it's not a major so um, it's not a major cost uh, 
containment opportunity for Genentech. We're, Genentech is a little bit different uh, as a company. We only do business in the United States. So we develop and we sell and we market our products in the United States. Outside the United States, we uh, work through a network of uh, we, we work through a network of, of companies um, that have licensed our product for sales outside the United States. Um, so we we don't do large numbers of clinical trials. Um, we're interested in expanding our clinical development outside the United States, um, but actually for for two re for maybe three reasons. The third would be cost. Um, the reason we're interested in expanding our clinical trials outside the United States is, first, so that we can get a more diverse population of patients. Um, and I th you know, that, that's important to us. And second, um, we need to be able to go faster and to access larger numbers of patients so that we can conduct large clinical trials um, safely and ethically, but as quickly as possible. And then I think the third consideration would be cost. So um, we are now looking at opportunities to expand our clinical development capabilities outside the United States, but cost is probably among the three considerations um, the, the least important. Our business is really very much quality driven and not cost driven. Costs are important and they'll get even more and more important, uh, but uh, I, I think the focus of our company for the foreseeable future will really be more on quality than cost. Uh, yes? So the, the question was, or the statement in question were, um, one way that's been proposed to break up the power of big pharmaceutical companies has been to separate development and manufacturing. And uh, do I think that's an effective, the question was, do I think that's effective or I, do I have other uh, thoughts about how that could be done? Is that a fair statement? Fair restatement? Okay. Um, so I think actually the big pharmaceutical companies um, are going to break themselves up. Um, I don't think it's going to, I think, I think what, what you just proposed, I think it's going to happen, but I think it's going to happen from within as opposed to uh, as outside. I think the, the major pharmaceutical companies um, will, this is really a forward-looking statement, um, but uh, I think the major pharmaceutical companies will evolve into companies that do large global phase three clinical trials and do marketing of open care products or products in these well, you know, broadly utilized therapeutic categories like regulation of blood pressure, infectious diseases, things like that. Um, and I, I think drug discovery and early development uh, is largely going to come from the smaller biotechnology companies. I mean, that's, lar that's literally happened um, as, the, as the major pharmaceutical companies, as their research organizations have failed to deliver innovative new products, the big pharmaceutical companies have reached into biotechnology companies to access new products. Um, and as 
the cost of licensing or accessing those products has escalated because of the competition for those few good products. Um, there's been a recent trend towards actual acquisition of the company. So the, in, in what I do for a living, which is to look at strategic alliances, what I've seen in the last few years is the big pharmaceutical companies um, buying small entrepreneurial biotechnology companies to get access to their innovative products um, and then just because it's a cheaper and more simple way of accessing those companies and also because the major multinational companies have lots of um, dollars that they've earned outside the United States that uh, for a limited period of time can be repatriated or brought into the United States if they're invested in R&D activities such as acquiring small companies so there's I, th I think what, what you're proposing is, is happening, but, it has, but I think it's happening not because anyone feels necessarily a, a need to break up the companies. I, I don't see a need to break up the big pharmaceutical companies. I don't think they're doing anything wrong or anything bad, but I think their business model has failed and they're going to break up as a result of it. Uh, yes, sir, in the very back. How much of drug discovery is uh, trial and error? And you mentioned a couple of drugs that were sort of created during the 20 percent time. Um, and the, that, to that notion, how much of uh, drug discovery depends on computer simulation, like molecular modeling and so on? And the second question is, uh, uh, what is the effect of the generic drug industry on the biotech industry? Okay. So there, there were two questions. One was, what's the effect of the generic drug industry on the biotechnology industry? And the other question was, what percentage or what proportion of drug discovery is uh, see if I have this right, biology versus in, uh, engineering, molecular modeling, and in silico testing. Is, is that a fair restatement of the question? Okay. So it's really hard to, to say what percentage of, of, uh, of drug discovery is in vitro or you know, cell culture uh, experiments, in vivo or in the body of, of animals or man's biology, so the two forms of wet biology or in silico biology or chemistry. It's really hard to tease it apart. I think it depends a lot on the company and whether your you know, focus is on you know, large molecule products or small molecule products. But it's really integrated into everything that we do, molecular modeling and computational chemistry, even in the, in the large animal or the, the large molecule world. Uh, it's so integrated into what we do. Um, I, I wouldn't, and, and, and hard to separate also from bioinformatics. Um, maybe in our research organization, 10 to 15 percent of the people um, have backgrounds in molecular modeling, uh, bioinformatics, computational chemistry, computational biology. So the second question was, what's the impact of uh, the generic drug companies on the biotech industry? So um, it's the, the, the generic pharmaceutical companies um, have, have had a major impact on the traditional pharmaceutical companies, the companies that make traditional small molecules um, or the kinds of drugs that can be taken as pills, the simple molecules, molecular weights around 500 versus high molecular weight therapeutic proteins like antibodies because drugs and biologics are actually regulated differently and there's a completely different set of regulations that that deal with generic drugs for our, versus um, what we now call follow-on biologics. Um, so, so insofar as the biotechnology companies are fo focused on 
high molecular weight proteins, there's been, all, there's been really no impact at all. Um, insofar as the biotechnology companies are focused on traditional small molecules, I think there are concerns that those companies have around patent expiration um, and, uh, and price erosion, but many of those companies haven't been around long enough or in, lo in the market long enough to, to really have any significant impact. Um, at Genentech, um, our, our view on follow-on biologics uh, and, and uh, generic drugs is that we think follow-on biologics, if they're safe, if you can demonstrate that they're safe and effective, um, that we think follow-on biologics are good for patients, they're good for the industry, and we're not opposed. Same true with small molecules. We think generic drugs are good for patients. We think they're good for the industry. Um, and our answer to follow-on biologics, our answer to generic drugs is have a better drug. There's lots and lots of, of uh, unmet medical needs. There's lots of opportunities to develop innovative drugs. And our answer to you know, to patent expirations and to generic or follow-on drugs is to have a better innovative drug. Wow, I don't know where to go. <laughs> okay, yes? Uh, do you think uh, your most valuable resource will be your researchers and your development, your R&D section of the company? And can you talk a little bit more about Solar? Well, actually, I think that the most valuable resource in the company is the business development group because that's my... <laughs> No, um, you're absolutely right. W without a doubt, the, uh, the, the scientists, the folks doing drug discovery and research are the most important uh, people in, in our company, other than maybe the CEO. Uh, he's got a really important job, and, and I, I, just, I, I can't imagine that Genentech would be the company that it is without Art Levinson as the CEO, but he's a scientist, and he came, came up through the, through the science organization. Um, the scientists have the best facilities, the best labs. If you come to our campus, you, you'll see that. They have the, the labs that are right along the water, the waterfront property. They've got the great views. Um, and uh, and there are, there are um, benefit and compensation plans for scientists that enable you to continue to grow and re, you know, achieve your financial objectives while staying focused on the science as opposed to having to leave the science and go into management and do something else in order to climb up the ladder. Um, so I, I do think that the scientists are the most important folks. Um, so you asked about a product called Zolair. So Zolair is a monoclonal antibody for the treatment of IgE. So, or, <laughs> excuse me, Zolair is a monoclonal antibody for the treatment of allergic asthma. Um, and uh, we have lots of different immunoglobulins that, that our body makes to, uh, that, to protect us from a variety of different diseases. There's a, a, a form of, uh, of immunoglobulin called IgE, which actually mediates most of the signs of, of allergy and anaphylaxis. And so we developed Zolair, which is a monoclonal antibody that binds IgE, doesn't bind anything else, so it doesn't really have any side effects, uh, but for the treatment of patients who have allergic asthma. And it's been a remarkable product for patients with uh, allergic asthma. We have clinical trials ongoing also in patients with peanut allergy. So these are the patients, uh, primarily the kids, who someone opens a little bag of peanuts in the back of the room uh, and they'll go into anaphylaxis and can't breathe in the front of the room. So we're conducting a clinical trial in, in that group of patients with Zolar. 
did I answer your question about Zoller? Yeah. Yeah, okay. So, um, I'll try some in the back there. You had touched on some of the larger biotechs and pharma going out of the basic research and then going into acquiring mode. And I was wondering, since those little companies that are being acquired are venture capital funded, are the venture capitalists taking an unreasonable risk in investing in biotech? If biotech itself isn't willing to do this. Well, it, it, it's really interesting to see what's going on in startups and new company formation. So um, around late 90s, um, it became clear that we were going to sequence the human genome. And investors believed that that would revolutionize drug discovery and development and commercialization. And in fact, it will uh, and, and may already have uh, done that, but, but, it, but it hasn't made anyone a lot of money. Uh, but in, in, uh, in 2000, we had our own bubble in the biotechnology industry uh, around the genomic sciences where literally anyone with... Uh, an, an annual report with a picture of someone with a DNA sequence and a white coat could go out and raise 50, 100 million dollars um, to revolutionize drug discovery based on sequencing the human genome. Um, and that bubble burst and people lost a lot of money. And so after about mid-2000, uh, or since mid-2000, it's been really, really difficult to get, uh, to, to start innovative new companies and what's and the reason is venture capital investors usually don't start companies because they like starting companies or they want to start interesting companies they start companies because they need a return on their investment and they need an exit strategy and that exit strategy and that return has historically come through initial public offerings but the public markets since mid-2000 have basically ignored the small cap, the startup biotechnology companies uh, and initial public offerings have been incredibly rare and, and the few that have gone on um, have, uh, have, have not been largely successful. So the venture capital investors instead of starting entrepreneurial companies, companies per pursuing drug discovery and interesting science, are now, they're doing two things. Number one, they're not starting new companies at all. They're saving their money to invest and to, in, in, and to keep the existing companies in their portfolios going until at some point they can go public and they can get out of their investment. The companies they have started have been really what, what we call devcos or development companies. So they're taking existing products that have been um, uh, that have been reformulated for new uses, products that have been abandoned by uh, big pharmaceutical companies either because they were for being developed for indications that where they failed and someone thought there would be another indication or they were being developed for an indication that was viewed as being too small and therefore not attractive. And so the, about the only company that can get venture, new company that can get venture funding now is a company that has a story that, that, that along the lines of a product in phase three clinical trials where we can get to the market quickly uh, and, and, and uh, either become profitable or to uh, be acquired by or to be the subject of a successful public offering. So I actually worry a lot about this and and uh, as a company that's business, whose business model depends on innovation, I really worry 
that uh, since middle of 2000, there's been very little venture investment or new company formation uh, around companies that are trying to do innovative science uh, and, and really reach for um, new cures for, uh, for serious diseases. Um, we have a small venture fund at Genentech in our group that we, that we manage, um, and that, which we created just to invest in some of these smaller entrepreneurial companies to help them get started um, with the thought that if they're successful, maybe they'll be uh, willing to partner with us some, at some point in the future. Um, so I worry about a potential innovation gap uh, in, because of the limited number of new companies that have been started and the kinds of companies that have been started. Uh, yes, sir. So, so you mentioned that you encourage innovation that in your company, but, but in the same time you have to make profit. So, so how do you balance those two? Like you make your scientists, it's different from academic scientists. Um, we try not to do that too much. I think what, what we've found is that if, if we can discover and develop a product for the treatment of a life-threatening or a life-altering disease, and if we can be innovative or first in class, um, what we found and what I think I tried to show with our slides is we've been able to generate profits that have been able to sustain our business uh, and make us grow rapidly. So, so I, I guess what we fundamentally believe at Genentech is that if we do the right thing for patients, if we continue to pursue innovation, that will continue to be profitable. Yes? Yeah, I'm wondering, uh, two possible questions. First off, uh, what's the percentage uh, of your expenses in R&D versus sales and marketing? Number one. And number two, I spoke with a representative recently, and she told me that Yes. Okay. So, um, so the the second question was about. I'm not sure what the question was, but it was about. Good point. So uh, Avastin was first approved for the treatment of uh, metastatic colorectal cancer, and the the cost of that treatment is about fifty thousand dollars a year. Um, and for virtually all patients, um, the that drug is paid for by insurance because of the positive pharmacoeconomic benefits because the product's been demonstrated to increase survival. Um, so the vast majority of patients uh, are, uh, have insurance and their insurance pays for the drug. Patients that don't have insurance, um, we make sure that they get our drug for free. And patients who have co-pays, um, we have financial uh, we, we work with charitable organizations to help them with their co-pays. So to the best of my knowledge, 
we're not aware of any patient in the United States that is that that needs our drug that has not uh, received our drug because they couldn't pay for it. So I think I think that's part of the story. The other part of the story is there are um, when we got uh, our second approval for Avastin in lung cancer, the um, the dose for the treatment of lung cancer is about twice what it is in metastatic colorectal cancer. So we introduced a program of basically caps. And what we said is that any patient who, who uh, can, who, who, I think our cap is at $55,000 a year. So any patients who need our drug, even if they're insured and even if their insurance would cover it, we're going to cap individuals' expenses at $55,000 a year so that physicians can use the right drug for, uh, the, for the disease, for, for the specific disease of those patients, and they don't have to worry about um, using a less effective dose because they're concerned about costs. Uh, the other question you asked was, so um, are the percentage of our, of our revenues, which is, uh, goes into R&D, is about 20%. Um, I don't know exactly what our uh, what percentage of our revenues go into sales and marketing, um, so I, I don't know the answer. I can get back to you. Uh, it's probably significant, um, but uh, I think if you look at the profitability of our industry or of our of our company, I think our profits were about twenty five percent profitability uh, compared to Microsoft about 30%. So, I mean, I don't know if you think profits are a bad thing. I mean, that's kind of what I felt, you know, when, when you asked your question, you know, as, you know, are profits are a bad thing, you know, should Genentech make profits? Uh, I think profits enable us to develop products like Lucenus that have revolutionized the treatment of age-related macular degeneration. So, I'm happy that we have that opportunity to, to be profitable so that we can continue to invest like we have. Um, so. Okay, last question. Uh, yes, sir. Can you please elaborate more on patenting and licensing and So we only do uh, business in the United States. Um, there's a, a Swiss company, Hoffman LaRoche, who owns 60% of our shares, and they have an option to commercialize, to license, and then to commercialize all of our products outside the United States. Um, when they don't exercise their options, um, then we can work with other multinational companies. So in addition to uh, Hoffman LaRoche, we work with Beringer Engelheim, uh, Ipsen, and we work with uh, Novartis, Novartis Markets, Zolaire, and Lucentis. Um, so uh, we do that licensing. But we, we also collaborate and license patents and technologies from academic institutions, uh, other biotechnology companies really around the world to bring technologies into our products. Um, most of our products will incorporate probably five to ten different um, proprietary technologies or know-how that are licensed and then consolidated into what looks like a single, I mean it may be a bottle, a clear glass bottle with a clear liquid, but there may be uh, five to ten different um, intellectual properties that have been licensed um, that underlie the, the technologies that are incorporated in that product. So it's now 5.30 or a little after, and so I'll just say thanks very much for inviting me here. Um, and uh, 
If you have any further questions, if you can uh, direct them through your sponsor, then I'd be happy to answer them for you. Thanks.